Hello and welcome to Walkley Talks, a podcast series from the Walkley Foundation featuring some of the best journalistic talent from Australia and around the world. 2013 has been a landmark year for Australian sport, but unfortunately not for the right reasons. In a year in which Manchester United has visited our shores, with back-to-back Ashes Test Series and a captivating British and Irish Lions tour, the on-field spectacle has often been overshadowed by off-field scandals. Stories about major drug investigations, corruption inquiries, racism and the ubiquity of gambling have dominated the blogs, airwaves, Twitter feeds and the front and back pages. Has Australian sport become dirtier or have sports journals simply become better at hunting down scandals? How has social media changed how sport is being reported? And with the AFL and NRL hiring journalists and setting up their own media teams, how do we know we're getting the real story? In partnership with the State Library of New South Wales, we are delighted to bring you this fascinating conversation between some of Australia's brightest sports journalists. Your moderator for this discussion is ABC Grandstand's Amanda Shalala. Thank you everyone for coming. It's the first time that the Walkleys has put on one of these talks focusing on sports journalism, which is quite incredible because as a nation that loves sports so much, we rarely take the time to step back and look at those who are actually giving us the story. We have a very experienced panel here tonight to give you their insights into the current state of play in the sports media landscape looking at some of the big issues that we've seen this year, which Chris touched on, and the future of the industry. Where is sports journalism in Australia going from here? So let me introduce the panel to you, starting with Alex Brown on my left. He's the National Head of Sport at News Corp Australia and Fox Sports. Before that, he was a Director of Sport at the Daily Telegraph and Sunday Telegraph. He's worked as a sports editor at the Sydney Morning Herald. He was a deputy editor at ESPN Crick Info and a sports journalist at the San Francisco Examiner, The Guardian and The Sun Herald. Welcome, Alex. In the middle, we have Steve Mascord. He is rugby league's everywhere man. If there's something he doesn't know about rugby league, it is definitely not worth knowing. He's worked for AAP, the Sydney Morning Herald, Daily Telegraph and Rugby League Week. He's also a contributor to Grandstand Radio and Triple M and he's covered the code all around Australia and some very obscure places around the world as well. Welcome, Steve. Finally on the end, Malcolm Conn. Malcolm has spent 20 years as Chief Cricket Writer for The Australian and has been News Corp's leading cricket scribe for the past two years. In 1999, he became the first cricket writer to win a Walkley Award. That was for his work on that now infamous John the Bookmaker scandal involving Mark Waugh and Shane Warne. He's a regular on radio here and on the BBC, and he's a part of Fox Sports cricket coverage. Malcolm is the secretary of the Australian Cricket Media Association, and he's just completed his fifth miserable this time around, Ashley's Tour. <laughs> Welcome to Malcolm. So I thought we could just get started with looking at the current state of play in the industry. Malcolm, might start with you. How have you seen the sports journalism and the sports media industry generally develop over the time you've been involved, particularly now looking at the 24-hour news cycle and social media, online news, all these elements? Well, I think there are two main aspects to your question. The first one, obviously, is that we're now in such an immediate uh, media um, scenario that everybody knows everything that's happened straight away. So when I first started covering cricket, you could still write your standard match report, you could still basically say what went on, but by the time that comes out in tomorrow's newspaper, that is cold. You've, the motto has always been, it should be in good journalism, you've got to tell the people something. So you've got to find a way of taking it forward, of expanding it, whether it's uh, with, with uh, different ideas, whether it's people you've spoken to, you've got to be able to present more than what people have seen and what people have heard. That's, that's the big challenge. The second big challenge is going across the various mediums. When I first did uh, an Ashes tour uh, in 1993, working for The Australian, uh, during the matches you were very busy filing for your various deadlines, but between the matches you might file one, I used to get annoyed if I had to file two stories on a given day. Well, now I probably file two stories before the first ball's bowled. So, and you're writing for internet, you're writing for newspapers. With now with the involvement in Fox, you're doing stuff for Fox. So there's a, there's a much broader aspect which gives the journalists much more freedom to express themselves and much more immediacy and be able to tell the people, the fans, what's going on. But as a result, obviously, you're busier. Well, Steve, just on that point, 
when you have all those greater demands placed on you, does it therefore impact on the quality of what you're able to do? Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I think that's for other people to judge. I'm not sure there was ever any quality there in my work. But, uh, <laughs> but um, I, actually, I find it's come a full circle. I, I started at AAP, Australian Associated Press, and it's still my favourite job. Uh, never got my name in the paper, never had, never had to write an opinion story. Uh, it was still my favourite job because you were telling people things they didn't know. And, um, and you wrote a story, it got put out on the wire and people knew about it within, um, within five minutes and that's what Twitter does. So I, I, I find it's, uh, it's just come the full circle and uh, those instincts that were sort of uh, ingrained from when I was at AAP when I was 18 years old, um, you know, a job straight out of high school, I find those instincts um, are, um, are now just uh, you know, coming in more handy than they ever were. And in fact, to the point where I have arguments with people over hashtags because I'm using AAP keywords from 1988. And that's, that's my guide for a hashtag. I, I was using hashtags 20 years before Twitter. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I think if you're, if you're involved in journalism, then you must have... A, you, you know, the core instinct should be to tell people things they don't know. That should be your key thing that you get off on, not having your name in the paper or getting invited to talks like this or being on TV or writing an opinion piece or influencing sports administrators. You should get a kick out of telling people something that they don't know. And I think really um, all the new media does is facilitate that. You can get off on it more regularly. <laughs> Alex, the theme of tonight's talk is, is looking mainly at the underbelly of sport, the scandals, the drama, the intrigue. Do you think that there is more of a, or that sports, sports media outlets want to tell scandal more and, and get off on telling those stories, or is it just that it's more prevalent and it's the nature of the professionalised sports, it's giving us more of that? I've got to say, it, it hasn't, the needle hasn't shifted over the course of my career. No one is looking for more or less scandal than, you know, when I clocked on in the mid-90s. Um, I think, unfortunately, what you're getting is that there, as money filters its way into the sports and, you know, basically wherever there is money, there is the potential for corruption and vice. And I think that's where we're, where we're getting to, unfortunately. Um, think in the days of amateurism or even sort of low-level professionalism in terms of, um, in terms of pay, there wasn't all that much incentive to, to cheat, for example. Now, with multi-million dollar contracts on offer and, you know, performance incentives, you know, written into contracts and the like, that incentive does exist and that's where you see... For example, you know, athletes, are, and in some cases, you know, depending on where the Asada investigation goes, potentially clubs at an institutional level um, looking for that advantage because the um, the financial rewards associated with success are so great now. You mentioned the Asada investigation; that has probably been the dominant sports topic all year. What do you think about the coverage that it's garnered? Has it been justified, or has it been a little bit over the top? I I would say justified. Um, I mean, essentially. It's been such a bizarre scenario where, really, from day one, it started us about really. I mean, that press conference um, called by Kate Lundy and the heads of sport is really the press conference that gets called after you've completed the investigation, not to announce that you, hey, everybody, we're about to start one. Um, and I think from there, it's been you know really there 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 have been periods of circus, but at, at, a, at a genuine at a, at a base level, there are some really serious allegations here and some real issues here that genuinely affect or could affect the integrity of sport and you know as us as the media as, as, as people as, as sports lovers as much as observers you need to know at a fundamental level that the sport you're watching is being you know competed at a fair level you know we it's why there are checks in place for um you know for uh, performance enhancing drug use we need to know that we're watching a fair and balanced contest um some of the allegations that are out there right now really sort of throw that into question. Were, were we, um, in, the, in the periods um, stated, were we watching a fair and balanced contest? And that's really what's playing out now. Steve, you said the aim of journalism is to tell people something they don't know. As someone immersed in rugby league, when it comes to this Asada investigation, how have you been approaching it in terms of what stories to tell? Yeah, it's really interesting. I've got to say, um, you know, I'd probably be um, uh, lying if I said that I'd been at the pointy end of this because I've, I've been covering games for radio and I've been working for a weekly magazine. So Alex has been at the pointy end of it and there's been some great stuff in the Telegraph from the likes of James Hooper, Josh Massoud and, uh, and Rebecca Wilson. So um, from my point of view, I suppose I've looked at it as a, as a rugby league fan and I, I agree with Alex. It was a bizarre press conference. Um, it, I think I was overseas at the time when, when, it, when it happened. Um, and then they seem to have worked, but everything seems to have been happening in reverse. Uh, 
they've, they've now got more powers to investigate. That's after the press conference, um, after they were told nothing in the, in the interviews. Um, now, I would have thought you would start with the powers, then you would do the interviews, and then you would have the press conference. So um, it's, it's hard not to think of it as a, um, a, a, as, as a little bit of a political football, even though the allegations are very serious. Um, the manner in which it's been um, 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 dealt with by the agency has been, uh, sometimes it's been like a bit, bit sideshow alley-like uh, to the, you know. Um, and, and obviously, as again, and I'm only speaking like anyone sitting there because I haven't been at the point end of this as a journalist, but it would appear that also um, um, the people involved in the investigation have not liked the way they've been portrayed and that as a result information has come um, um, come into the media which places them uh, in a better light. And again, that seems uh, a little bit amateurish. So, But I agree with Alex. Um, you know, that's the thing. I think people, people have, at the moment, unfortunately there's an enormous amount of distrust about the uh, traditional media. People want to believe athletes and they want to disbelieve journalists. And I think um, when they're doing this in this process, the, their moral clock starts to spin and they, start, they stop asking themselves what's right, what's wrong, did it happen, did it not happen. And wh whether you like, whether you distrust journalists and you like your favourite athlete, I think you've, uh, you've still got to go back to those uh, key questions. Did these guys take these things uh, and should they have? And if not, then, you know, and if they did, then what action should be taken? And, and take the personalities out of it and, and what you like about the coverage or what you don't like about the coverage. But I think also, just to, to your point too, exacerbating this is the time lag. Um, you know, basically we, we were told at the start of the year, everybody, darkest day in sport, you know, here it comes, and then we, everybody just sort of sat there and waited for the, for the, for the bomb to drop, and it just didn't. Um, we, um, ASADA were asked to conduct an investigation that, you know, really is unprecedented for them in a lot of ways. Um, you know, they hadn't really had to deal with an investigation to this level before. So, um, again, I, I sort of, I, I really put a lot of the fault of this on that first, that very first day that, you know, again, it's like starting a murder trial with a guilty verdict and then working back. Um, um, it, it, the, the, the fact that it's dragged on for so long, I think, has really exacerbated this more, you know, more than anything. And don't, don't, for one minute, anybody underestimate this story because I'm an AFL fan and the whole James Hurd persona has just been ridiculous. I can't believe that he is allowed to come back and coach a football team in 12 months' time. I would have thought that if the AFL was serious about the integrity of its sport, fair enough, fine Essendon $2 million, fair enough, kicked him out of the finals. This guy was the head of his football department. He's the guy in charge of football who oversaw a program which, if it had gone to its provision, fruition would have seen 26,000 injections given to a playing list of 40. Now, if you're the parent of an 18-year-old son who is about to be drafted by Essendon, what would you be thinking right now? Like, this is a very serious story that goes to the heart of the well-being of the players. No one in the AFL has found to have done anything illegal yet, and yet Essendon has been very strongly penalised, and I still think the AFL has copped out, because they've got a so-called sports scientist with no real qualifications, the doctor's been sidelined and they've put these young, impressionable athletes through a program uh, which was basically an experimental farm. Now that, it, it, you cannot bring your sport more into disrepute than to treat your athletes like that. So this is a very big story and it's got a long way to run. We're just going to change tags a little bit from that and look at something that Malcolm was involved with this year, the ultimate journalist versus athlete, care of Twitter. So, Robert Craddock, one of Malcolm's colleagues, wrote an article about the Indian Premier League. David Warner's image went along with this story. Warner took exception to it and chose to lash out on Twitter directly, uh, speaking to Robert about it, and then Malcolm responded. So, let me read a few of the exchanges for you. So, David Warner to Malcolm. Coming from you, champion, all you do is talk shit as well. What about encouraging Oz players rather than bagging them? Malcolm's response, you lose 4-0 in India. Don't make a run and you want to be tickled on the tummy. Win the ashes and get back to me. Which, of course, didn't happen. Three votes. And then a couple more from Dave to uh, round it off. Are you still talking, you old fart? No wonder no one buys your paper. Have a look at you. You're a fool writing back thinking you're talking to a wannabe cricketer. Ha ha. Okay, Malcolm, just, just tell us your reaction initially to the whole thing and then the aftermath because this took on a life of its own. Well, it was extraordinary. I was just home one weekend and... I'd read uh, Crash's story in the paper and thought it was a really terrific 
background into the sleazy side of the IPL. He'd been over there writing Matthew Hayden's book. He'd seen, I think it was the second IPL. Um, he'd seen all the after parties. He'd seen all the mingling and mixing and going on, all the dodgy characters having full access to players and officials, all very uncomfortable uh, in terms of what Crash saw. He's written a terrific article, and Warner, who's been paid roughly a million dollars a year to play in the IPL, has bagged it from India where he's playing in the IPL, and I thought he was right out of line, and so I said so. Now, a bit of background to this is that I think that David Warner is a bit too full of his boots. He thinks he's Mr Hollywood. There was only one Mr Hollywood. That was Shane Warner. He took about 700 wickets, so <laughs> Warner's got a long way to go. So I took exception to that, and I thought, I'm going to put this bloke in his place. And I thought it would be a bit of banter, just sort of saying, well, listen, sunshine, just remember who you are and what you've done. And the world went mad. Like, <laughs> I've written the Shane Warne Mark War bookie scandal, which is probably the biggest story I've ever written. I thought that was a big yarn. Nothing was as big <laughs> as David Warner v Malcolm Con on Twitter. It was incredible. I got How many every... followers did you put on that day? I put on 3,000. He put on 12,000. So he, he won. It cost him about five grand. But and fine. this is Maskell's fault for inventing the hashtag. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I got a call from every TV station. I got a call from radio stations around the country, I got calls from radio in England, I got calls from radio in India. I thought, this Twitter is amazing. And if David Warner had chosen his words more carefully, it wouldn't have blown up, it would have just been a bit of banter between two people. So the power of Twitter, you cannot underestimate it. I was gobsmacked when the whole thing unfolded. Well, Alex, with what you do at News Corp and Fox Sports, how do you moderate Twitter because there's so much that you see on there. A lot of rumours, say earlier this year Blake Ferguson, the allegations of indecent assault, uh, that first emerged on Twitter. So how do you sift through all that and sort the fact from the fiction? Yeah, a couple of points I think from this. One is that although um, you know there, there are more mediums from, for all of us to communicate on, really I, I still think that the basic fundamentals of journalism hold. We need to tell good, accurate stories to people that hopefully are of interest um, and they will read them. Um, we need to now deliver them across more platforms than we, than we ever have before and, and I think the consumption habits change whereas, you know, 20 years ago you could either basically watch it on TV, listen to it on the radio or buy the paper. Um, increasingly, you know, there was a, 15 years ago the, the first sort of online wave where, you know, everybody sort of got uh, savvy with, you know, building websites and the like, but now that's changed again um, in the realm of social media where people aren't even, even going so far as to go to sites anymore. They are quite happy to sit on Facebook and Twitter all day and let mm. the information come to them. It's, a, mm. it's really completely changed the delivery dynamic, if you like, of journalism. Yet, our charter, I say, is still the same. Um, we, maybe we've just got to tell it a bit quicker, but you still have to check facts. Now, I think there is, and, and this is where I think we need to be very careful with the next generation coming through that they don't that they're not completely seduced by uh, Twitter in the sense that I now don't have to check facts because I have a stream of player dialogue coming towards me. Incorrect. Mm. You you must check. You must. You, you, this it, it, look. It's a really interesting insight. I think into into players in their in their downtime and the like, and and you know, and, and it, it really it, it has lent itself obviously to some to some great stories along the way, but I think um, journalistically it does not ever take away from the fact that a journalist still must check. Well, I just want to make a point, but the other thing is it's kind of it's shallow in a way. It, it kind of distracts the attention of everyone away from real issues, as as you said. You know, you covered a match fixing. Um, um, scandal and yet you got more attention having a, a stink with a player on Twitter. I mean, there's an example two days ago. Um, I've got my own website just on WordPress. There's uh, I don't earn any money out of it. Anyone wants to sponsor it? See me afterwards. But uh, um, and and what I do is with the rugby league week stories, I put them up the next week or when I get time. So I put up a story um, two days ago. It was uh, um, Sonny Bill Williams had a running fight with this guy um, Ryan James, who plays for Gold Coast. A bit of a bickering in a game. So I said to Ryan James after the game, what happened? He said, oh, I went to shake his hand at the end and he brushed me, you know. So it appeared in, it appeared in Rugby League Week 11 days before I posted it on, on the Rugby League Week Facebook page and elsewhere. 11 days. Now, um, my, I got um, my total um, readership for an entire day, some of which I've posted 12 stories, was, um, was uh, um, eclipsed twice, like I so said, three times just that one story, three times the entire day audience for that one story. And people said, this story is a disgrace. 
what is the point of this story? You're trying to run down Sonny Bill Williams, all this sort of stuff. Because Sonny Bill Williams was interviewed by Phil Gould last week and it was a nice sort of fluffy, isn't he a great guy? And, 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 and that really fascinated me, that um, criticism. What is the point of the story? It's just a dressing room yarn. I went up to some bloke, asked him a question, he answered it. Why, this, and this is what has happened, I think, with the, um, um, with, with the, the process you discussed, that now um, the newspapers have to do something different. They can't just give people new information. So, so people have become suspicious. And, and they think a story must have a point. It must be part of a campaign. You must be trying to run down Sonny Bill Williams because he was portrayed as a saint on the television. And I said... If I write 600 stories this year, it's probably the 500th best story I've written this year. Hey, can, can it, why you? does it have to have a point? It, it, a story is what's in it. If Ryan James says he was brushed by Sonny Bill Williams, it means Ryan James says he was brushed by Sonny Bill Williams. It doesn't mean Sonny Bill Williams is rude. It doesn't mean Ryan James is a... It, a story is what it says. What has happened to that? Can I, can I ask a question? Because it's really interesting to me. Do you think that the readership has become more cynical, conspiratorial, whatever you want to label it? Or is really, is this the stuff that people just used to mutter into the newspaper as they read it, but now it actually reaches you? No, no, I, I, think, um, I, think, I think the process from Leveson um, um, uh, and, and before and after, um, I think people have seen behind the curtain at newspapers. Um, they've seen some of the uh, um, uh, um, philosophies at work, some of the methods at work. Um, I think people used to trust what they read in the paper more. They trust what they read in the paper less than they ever have right now. And, and I think um, as a result, they start with the belief that a story is part of some sort of agenda or campaign and they work backwards from that. But also people, the, the one thing about Twitter that people don't understand, and it's got to catch someone big time one day, is the significant legal ramifications. We had a ridiculous situation out of India Someone, people are always getting accused of different things. At one stage, Sean Tate was accused of match-fixing in the IPL. Now, it didn't take long to track down the fact that that was a ridiculous yarn, but it had gone feral on Twitter. It had gone everywhere. So everybody who was accused Sean Tate of, breaking, of being a match-fixer on Twitter was technically legally liable. He could have sued all of them. I just want to pick up on that point. Alex, do you ever feel the pressure, say particularly if you look at something like Fox Sports News, it's rolling news coverage, if something like that emerges, you think, wow, that's massive. Is there a temptation to, to pick it up and report it, e even if you put in the, oh, allegedly, and you put in the disclaimers? If you oh. work at an FM radio station, yes. <laughs> because that, did, that particular incident did get reported on a lot of different media outlets when mm. nothing was proven. Mm. I'm not saying that. No, 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 but, but also, I mean, to clarify, never is fact, and, and also yeah. because Cricket Australia felt compelled because of the social media noise um, to issue a statement, wasn't it, to, to basically completely... Shit and, and that's what happened, and that was reported. I don't think anybody was running around reporting, oh, you know, Sean Tate could be dodgy. I, I think this also goes to one of the... Sorry, Alex. Oh, no, no, but what, sorry, what I was going to say is, is the temptation here? Yeah, of course it is. Like, you, know, <laughs> you, you always want to be first, but um, you also... But, but that's where you've got to pull yourself back and make sure that you've checked. And, and again, so the mediums might have changed, there may be more immediacy now, but you've still got to check. I, I don't know, actually, if anybody saw The Daily Show last night with Jon Stewart. There was just this wonderful um, skit on taking completely rubbishing CNN for their coverage of rolling events exactly like this and the fact that they basically just disperse six people into the field and just sort of make it up as they go to film TV. <laughs> That's where you can't be. Yeah. You cannot be there. But, I mean, all of this is you know, dancing around the big debate. Do we report what people want to know or do we report what people need to know? Yeah. And what people want to know is Malcolm having a stink on Twitter. What people need to know is that a match was fixed. And, you know, are we, do we, do we um, divert our energies towards... And are we more, because of the, the marginalisation of traditional media and the fact that we're losing circulation and all that sort of stuff, do we err towards what people want and go away from what people need? Or do we keep our focus on what people need to know? That's, that's a, great, a big question. That's a great point, because I've got a... Um a little app on my phone, I've got it on my, on my desktop at work too, called Chartbeast, and what I can do, I can see uh, foxsportsnews.com.au and all five news limited masters in real time. I can see on their sites what's top ten, what's trending, and it updates every sort of three or four seconds. And, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's amazing because it really challenges, like, you know, what we had as traditional media training, like what constitutes a good story. 
um, compared to what people are digging. It's yeah. really people don't People don't want to know that Sonny Bill Williams brushed someone at full time. So does that mean we take it down off, off the page? Because people, it's an uncomfortable truth. People don't like it. And I actually had this discussion with the guy who runs Rugby League Week's Facebook page. I said, it's your decision if you want to take it down. He said... People think that we're trying to run Sonny Bill down after, um, after the uh, Phil Gould interview. And I said, well, that's people's problem. It's not ours, you know. This story appeared 11 days ago. No one took any notice of it. And now it's in social media. People think it's got an agenda. So we have to pander to people's perceptions. I was trained at AAP. I say no. I don't care about their perceptions. You know, I'm, I'm there to ask questions and report what people say as a response. Full stop. But going back to what Alex said initially, the... When you actually look what's popular on websites, the cult of the celebrity in, in mm. modern media is incredible. Like yeah. Shane Warne and Liz are on page three again. So we pander to that, though. Well, well that, that's it. I mean, what about if, it? If, if, if you're in an organisation where you're trying to present stuff to people, you can't run your own agenda. You've got to. You, you'll go broke. Mm. So, how, how you where does that leave? <laughs> I'm struggling. <but> I'm... <laughs> Malcolm, where does that leave investigative sports journalism, though? Is it a dying art? Well, the great challenge with investigative sports journalism, and Alex would know better than me because he is at the pointy end of all this, is, is investing the resources, the time and the resources into doing it. Now, if you're trying to cover sport properly and you're covering it across a number of mediums, you're flat out often covering the day-to-day -day events that surround this sport and the, the news leading around that without actually sort of going any deeper. So it's actually a great challenge for modern media organisation with limited resources to be able to put those resources into that. I'd actually argue that in many ways, Asada has probably seen the best and the worst of our craft. Um, I think there's been some some really thorough, robust, and quite frankly, brave reporting um, that that's made life very uncomfortable for for some reporters who you know really been at the pointy end. On the flip side, I think you've also seen um, uh, others basically take you know a, a very sort of la a contrarian, late, lazy route where it's basically I will irrespective of the morality of, you know, what I'm writing or the, basically the side I may have taken on this, it's just an easy yarn. And I, I, I really think that, you know, in a lot of ways, and it's, it's sort of a little hard to assess because we're sort of still in the middle of it. I think, you know, with a bit of distance with this one, we'll be able to, to make a better assessment. But from what I see, I'm really seeing some of the best and worst of our craft right now. You mentioned, or you touched on sort of the relationship between journalists and athletes. Sometimes, obviously, journalists say, Malcolm, you've been covering cricket for decades. You get to know the players very well. Is there ever a point where you think, I don't want to report this about someone because of the relationship I have with them? Or, or is that something that might affect some journalists, the close relationship they have with the people they're reporting on? Well, that, that can be a danger, there's no question. And cricket's unique in that regard, and it certainly was. It's... it's drifted a bit now, but certainly when I started travelling, you stayed in all the team hotels, you saw them at the bar, you saw them at breakfast. Now, that didn't mean you were best mates. There was a lot of people who didn't trust the t uh, journalists or didn't particularly want to know you or whatever else, but there were always players you did mix with, players you got on with, there was a, a small percentage of them. So there's no question if you develop a rapport with someone, then you don't want to have to bury them. But by the same token, like, I got on okay with Shane Warne. I don't think he's a bad or malicious person, but... and and. I can take or leave Mark Waugh, it doesn't fuss me. And I quite enjoyed watching him bat when he didn't throw his wicket away. But when you've got to nail these blokes down for what they did, you've just got to do it. And that's what you're paid to do. Well, one of the big things about your craft is to stand up when you have to. Like, you know, it's like playing a footy game. You've got to stand up in the big games. That's what you're there for. You can't dodge the issue. You've got to nail it dead. And if there are consequences involved in it, well, bad luck. That's your job. You're paid to do it. Your one loyalty is your organisation. Because I tell you what, you don't get invited to any barbecues, you don't get any Christmas cards. So if you look after a bloke, it's only one-way traffic anyway. So mm -hmm. you've got to do your job. Cast Mal, just you're on the road a lot more than, than me these days. This sort of there just seems to be this widening chasm, if you like, between athletes and reporters. How much do you put that down to issues like you know social media or, or the like? And how much do you put it down to the the rise and proliferation of media managers as sort of the, the buffer, if you like, which, you know, I mean, when you started touring, they didn't exist. Uh, well, that's right. Up until, you know, the, the previous generation, like Hayden, Gilchrist, Hussey, you run through that generation, you could just ring them up and have a chat to them. Mm. And it was no big deal. But now, you know, guys who have done nothing have got their own manager because they're probably getting a million bucks a year to play cricket. And then there's a media manager as well. And you actually, so you've got to drop two massive hurdles to actually talk to the bloke and then you talk to them in 
an homogenised atmosphere, so you actually don't develop a rapport, it's a professional relationship. So in some ways it's actually easier to, to, to talk to players because it's managed and you get to talk to them, but when you actually speak to them, sometimes you don't get very much and you certainly don't get that rapport that you used to get around the bar or the finger in the chest from time to time or whatever it may be, the, sort of the, the, the interaction. And I blame Brett Lee for that because in 2000 he walked into a bath with a bottle of water and I thought, this is a bad sign, these days are over. Yeah. When I started touring, you couldn't get them out of the bar and now you can't get them into the bar. So it's very hard to find out what's going on. I think, though, Alex, a lot of it has got to do with uh, probably five to eight years ago, there was a peak in, in gossip journalism where we had player parks in handicap spot. And I think, um, I think that really uh, soured relationships, certainly in the NRL, between the media and um, the players. But the clubs have now capitalised on it I think if you really ask uh, the club bosses now, would you like the players to have a good relationship with the media again? They would say no. I don't think that... I mean, for a while there, after that, we were doing tours of clubs with the NRL media managers and talking to them about... It's called news. Same reason the funny stuff's called the funnies and the comical stuff's called the comics. It's called news. It's the new stuff. So when he interviews you, he wants you to tell him something new and then he'll go away happy. All that sort of stuff, you know. And uh, now they, they, don't, they don't invite us to go to those things anymore because the clubs want to control information flow. And as you said at the start, they're starting up their own websites and they want to do their own content. And they actually don't want... They, we... We or the, the rise of gossip journalism ruined the relationship and now the clubs are capitalising on that bad relationship and they want to perpetuate it because it's in their own interest. Well, this is something I want to talk about. So now the AFL has AFL media. They've got journalists with every single club embedded within their clubs reporting on all the issues. The NRL is starting up something similar. What does this mean for traditional media outlets that we all work for, Alex? Yeah, it's, I just lost somebody to Cricket Australia's new media arm this week um, and I've had to cut off two of the past to sort of save people from going over to the NRL. So it's a it's really interesting. Um, it's and it, look, I, look, on the one hand, I've got to say, and I was saying to, to one of uh, my younger guys today, on the one hand, I welcome it because four or five years ago, I was actually really starting to despair for the next generation of reporters. There was, there, there were no jobs. Like traditional media just had very, very few openings. Like universities are just churning out, you know, thousands and thousands of, of media graduates every year with just genuinely almost nowhere to go. So on the one hand, I welcome it because there are jobs again. Um, where I am very suspicious of it is um, what's the agenda? Obviously there's a commercial agenda, you know, it's fairly obvious, but the, the, the ability to control the media, I mean, you know, we've, uh, AFL media has been, mm. been um, nicknamed Pravda by the Yarra, I think, or something like that, in, in, in Melbourne. Um, and it, look, it's, it's, it's concerning, like at a fundamental level, like, you know, how, in terms of it, it's, it's officially sanctioned information. I had a really interesting chat a couple of months ago with the head of ESPN.com um, in the States, um, and, you know, I sort of feel that on a, on a lot of levels, they're sort of two, three years ahead of, um, ahead of where we are, and I sort of said, where, where has this gone? Because right now, in the traditional media, there's, there's a lot of anxiety about this, about, you know, the sort of cannibalisation of, of the digital market. Obviously, you know, print is in is in trouble as a medium. Um, and um, basically, he said that in in the states, what happened was there was sort of an initial surge, and then after, and and you know, and they held some of the market, absolutely the the, the official bodies. But after a while, it retreated, and people ended up going back to independent media, if you like, because they weren't particularly happy with the sanitised version of events they were getting from the official. Um, mediums now, you know. I think the AFL has been really. I think yeah. they've. If if you're going to do this, I think they've actually done it the right way. Yeah, they've yeah. they've empowered their um, reporters to get stuck into a play. You think the guy had a bad game? Say it. We're not going to stop it. Not only that, they broke a story about a player being caught with party drugs in his pocket. It was broken on AFL.com. Mm. I mean, that's 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 fantastic, yeah. isn't it? You know, like the only thing they won't do is break stories about the actual administration like if they hear that the grand finals on x date next year yeah. they won't write it well, they'll wait for the official announcement you know and cricket australia is fascinating because they've got a guy now who is in charge of he's got four portfolios that come into him and i can remember three, three of them are marketing comms and digital media and i, I said to him i met him today actually i said to him that if the head of digital media has got a, a from impeccable sources a story that james sutherland's about to get the boot but you answer into the guy who's also in charge of marketing and comms. How, where, where does this go? And, and, and this, is, this is the sticky spot they're going to hit.
Well, it, it's interesting with the, the Cricket Australia website. They are, as you say, boosting up. They're going to double their staff on their website. 30, 30 I think, mm. yeah. But they run AAP stories, but they take every critical line of the, out of the story. So you can pick up an AAP story and then read it on the okay. Cricket Australia yeah. website, and it's a different <laughs> game. <laughs> that is the information ministry, isn't it? That's yeah. <laughs> David Warner's impeccable duck. <laughs> I think we've covered a, a wide array of topics here, so it's probably time to open it up to everyone for questions. This Asada business, uh, I don't really follow religiously over the period of time because initially it was just a basically smokescreen to unfortunate government. But nevertheless, it's just going on, gaining some momentum, and if you just really look at that, squeeze it, there is nothing. Dust. And you know how someone, uh, no matter how good intentions, how long can someone go around and throw the accusation uni windows without any basically substance? If oh, oh, Mr. Can, X, can I, I, I would talk to the, um, the parents of the Essendon teenagers who had 40 injections and ask ask them if they think it's dust. I also think it's a bit, it's a, yes. just, just quickly, it's a bit, bit it's a bit rich to say that there's no substance when the Asada findings haven't even been handed down yet. So... Yeah, it's still just the... Yes. And people have come out and said, players have come out and said, you know, I had injections, my, I got bruising all over me. You know, I, you know, I mean, players you, have come out and said these things. You had pharmaceutical sales reps injecting players. Well, as I said, people have come out and said that they were involved in these programs. I mean... Yeah, but what... Yes, programs. What program? Were the substances illegal at the time when they'd been administered? They were covered by the code. There was a coverall in the code. You, Alex, you explain. But still there was were they available for human consumption? And will we get footballers when the same as Flojo, who died at the age of 38 because she was taking stuff that she shouldn't have taken? Look at how many athletes from the Eastern Bloc died in their 40s as a result of taking substances that nobody knew what the after effects were going to be. Let's, let's revisit this in 20 years and see how those Essendon players are going. Thanks. Other questions yet? Yeah. yeah. So you were saying earlier that um, you know we have a responsibility to tell people something that they don't know. Um, now there's a lot of people that don't know about women in sport. So I wanted to ask a bit of advice. Um, so what's your advice in convincing people that this is something that they want to know about, even though they don't know that yet? Uh, I'm really glad you asked that. This is a constant battle that, that I fight every day. I'm very passionate about covering women's sports. Uh, I'm lucky at the ABC. It's one of the places where there is a platform for it. It's in our charter that we actually have to be covering a whole array of different things. Um, in terms of cracking it into the mainstream outlets, say, away from the ABC, the commercial outlets, I don't know what the answer is. It's probably better to talk to these guys, but you have an ally in me. That's all I'm going to say. Um, I'm, I mean, I... From, from our end, um, uh, News and Fox sent um, a reporter to the Women's Ashes. Um, we have Nepal riders covering the National League at, um, in all major cities. Uh, WBL gets a, gets a good run. I guess it, it's at what sort of granular level of league are we talking? You know, so the, the, the professional leagues, I think, are okay. It absolutely can be better. And I think it's better than it was 10 years ago, and it needs to keep improving. Um, so I think that, you know, for example, you know, Telegraph today that, you know, sort of uh, just reading, I don't work in the office anymore, but, um, you know, I, uh, Iron Women got a decent run today, got a page lead in the paper I, I saw. Yeah, this is cool, that wasn't really my question. Oh, cool, so yeah. what is it? No, I mean, as in what, uh, what can I do or what can we do to convince people this is something they want to hear more about? Yeah. Like, don't tell me about the things that have been done. Because I know what you've done. Oh, I've got an idea that's a bit abstract. Right. Yeah. I've got an idea that's a bit abstract, but there, there's a study, and again, I don't know the details, and I'm not, I heard about it 15 years ago, that um, at the introduction of mass media, when printing presses become very um, fast and efficient, whatever sports around the world that were popular at that time were enshrined, and they have been ever since. And in, in the Western world, no sport has been um, overthrown since the uh, efficient printing presses. Now you would, and, and if you've noticed recently... Um, since social media, those sports have become even more enshrined. People have gone even crazier. Look at when Manchester United were here this year. You know, people have gone even crazier. So, I don't know if this, in some way, like women, uh, women's sport probably need to catch that wave, the next wave. And maybe it's not too late for social media to somehow really blitz it and, and get and get um, reference points in people that the thing that people don't often appreciate in, involved in sport. I find is like, for instance. I wrote a story a few years ago, you know, X played Y in the murder capital of the world. And the, the coach of X said, why have you got to throw that in there? And I said, well, 
you throw in a murder capital of the world and people might read beyond the first paragraph. And you know what I mean? And, and, and it's kind of a basic skill that, or it may not be a skill, maybe a devious dark art that journalists, uh, journalists do instinctively and other people don't see. But I think, I think maybe, you know, the women's sports probably, you know, if, if there was some way, and again, it's just an abstract idea off the top of my head, but if there was some way to catch that social media wave, you know, you, pulling in reference points from pop culture... That's what I'd be doing if I was if I was working for a women's sporting organisation. I'd be, you know that's what I'd be doing. Can I ask a question back? Because I'm I'm interested in this. So, have you is there a sort of specific sport event league team in mind that you've got here, or are you talking? No, no. I mean, I work generally promoting women in sport. Um, I right. Work for various websites and things, um, and social media is a big tool that I use a lot of. Yeah. But I guess yeah, that was my thing. It's just how to crack it into the mainstream media. It's an interesting. It's that sort of like how do you make something popular? And there's like a lot of sort of, you know, male and women's sport, you know, sort of trying to trying to crack the same code, but, yeah. People power might be the answer. Next question. You guys have talked about, you know, Brett Lee walking into a pub with a bottle of water and the Twitter spats. How hard is it for characters in sport to become institutionalised characters like David Boone or Ian Botham with the constant reporting and the social media and the 24-hour news cycle? I think there's a big difference between being a character and being a goose. <laughs> and and, and it's, it's a line that Shane Moore never discovered. Uh, I hope that's recorded. So... And so Warnie was a great character, but he was also a great goose. So, and you report what happens. Like, if you don't behave like a goose, you don't get reported that you behave like a goose. But a, a character is someone who develops on the field. You watch them play, you watch their mannerisms, you just watch them. They're just, they're just naturally exuberant. They, they just do things that attract people, or they speak in a natural way that attract people. It's, it, it's nothing manufactured. I mean, the, the problem we had in the 80s was Greg Matthews, who was, you know, hey, dude, you know, what a cool cat. It was a pain in the neck because it was also manufactured. Mm. It's just someone who comes across naturally and speaks well will just develop that. I mean, it's just something that happens. But, but, but we used to get people coming to us and say, oh, you know, you're, you're taking the characters out of the game, you're murdering them. And I said, no, we're trying to take the goose out of the game. <laughs> the characters will develop if they're there. There are some characters. I mean, I was told he just retired. Sean Berrigan is apparently around a team, the funniest man. Everyone loves him, and yet he just gave us nothing. You know, so he obviously... <laughs> You know, he he obviously just believed that his his whatever it is about his character wouldn't stand up to scrutiny, or he wasn't comfortable, and so he just did it all behind closed doors. And I think we are sort of scaring. We are. I, I think when you know, the reporting on a player's private lives, they they don't really understand it. They just know it's bad. So some of them either become boring as a result. Or if they are interesting, they try to appear boring because they're scared of it and they don't understand it. And as I said earlier, I don't think the clubs and the federations at, at this point want us to explain it to the players. I think they're happy that the players are, are scared a little bit because they've got this squeaky clean corporate image to uphold. All right, next question. Actually, Steve sort of answered much of my, my question. <laughs> I was, I'm just going to ask, maybe Malcolm is a good person to ask, do you find with the emergence of Twitter and social media and Instagram, have players become more vigilant about what they're doing? And, and you know, like a few months ago, Buddy Franklin's Instagram got hacked and he had the GWS thing, you know. Are, are players and athletes in general, are they becoming more wary of what can easily be put on Twitter or what can be put on Instagram? Um, than they were, you know, 20 years ago before social media came about. Has their attitude changed at all, or are they, are they pretty much the it, it, it has changed a lot, and the big thing that changed it was mobile phones where you could take photos, so that no one could argue with it. If you're out at 3 o'clock in the morning, and someone takes a photo of you at the bar at 3 o'clock in the morning, there you are. So the players have become really aware of that, but they've become more aware too that these guys are paid enormous amounts of money. The average Australian cricketer, and there's some pretty average Australian cricketers at the moment, <laughs> gets paid a million bucks for playing for Australia. If they're a good IPL player, they might get a million bucks for playing in the IPL if they're very good, and they might get another you know, 500000 to a million dollars in sponsorship. So you've got guys who are pretty young guys who have got a lot of people around them now who steer them in a particular direction saying you've got to have a good corporate image. Unfortunately, as Steve was saying, Part of having a good corporate image, they think, and Michael Clark's guilty of this sometimes too because he's pretty shallow in his press conferences sometimes, is boring. You don't have to be boring. Just don't be stupid. <laughs> right, we have time probably for a few more questions. Yes. Um, coming back to the Sonny Bill Williams saga, um, I was wondering whether you think that it shows that the public's understanding of sports journalism has changed to be essentially 
sport writer's opinion rather than actual news reporting and why that change might have occurred and how what we can do to stop it because clearly it's not news. Yeah, well, I think... I think what's happened is that um, it's exactly as Malcolm explained, the first person to speak tonight, you know, the, the newspapers can't get away with just telling the facts anymore because they're online. So the newspapers have to either find out a different angle that people don't know about, and you can't do that every day, particularly when access is shrinking. So the other thing is opinion. And the other thing, and particularly in a tabloid, is, you know, they like to dress things up, a good photo, a graphic, you know, that sort of thing. So, so people... Um, People have come. Some people have come to distrust that process. They don't. And, and, and as I said, with Levison, you know, you, you hear about you know people's phones being bugged and all this sort of stuff. So people have be, be, become um, distrustful. And so when they are faced with something that has no agenda at all, that is just someone's average saying something average, they assume it must be part of some giant agenda or campaign. Um, and I don't know if we can change it, but I'd like to think that. I'd like to think that journalism will eventually go back to like 1989 when I was at AAP. That really, with if we can find a funding model for online journalism, then the the the, the most valuable currency will go back to being a new fact, something people don't know. You know, once we let go of the daily newspaper model and we find a way to fund um, online journalism, then we'll we'll complete a full circle, I hope, and we'll go back to the we'll go back to the most valuable. Uh, commodity will be a new fact that people don't know. It's funny, yeah, as a, I was going to say, as a reader, um, just taking my media hat off for a second, I actually, I quite like um, news and comment. Um, I hate it when comment masquerades as news. That's mm. the worst yeah, that's the journalism thing. in the world. Absolutely. As, as long as it's clearly delineated, I quite enjoy it. And, I, I, you know, um, and Malcolm, you said so you do that really well, you know, between, you know, it, there's unambiguously, you know when you've written a news story and you know when you've written a comment piece. And I, I quite enjoy that and quite often I find that they're the most challenging, stimulating pieces that you'll read of a day. Because so. if I wrote um, Australia was comfortably placed at six for 301 at stumps on uh, day one of the first test of the Gabba, Alex would sack me. And rightly so. The only way you would write that is if you were writing an internet story or even putting it on Twitter that was going out straight away so people would instantly bang no on stumps, that's what's happened. But anything beyond stumps, you can't say that. So if I'm writing for the newspaper, I've got to say that David Warner is under pressure to keep his spot because he's failed for the seventh time in a row and he shouldn't be there because he's a little prick or things like that. <laughs> so you've got to find something to say that can take it further than just the stump score or, or what's happened. Now, it, it, there's this sort of all-pervading sort of feeling that the media is negative and they're out to get us. But the funny thing is when we cover cricket, and it's often with all sports, is that you're always talking to the best-performed player. So we will talk at the start, at Stumps every night, we will talk to the best performed player. And unfortunately, if the team hasn't gone particularly well, it's done in the context of the team not performing particularly well. But usually you will find, if you have a look through who's been spoken to, it's usually the person that's done the best. But nobody remembers the positive stuff anyway. It's, it's, it's really true that you can write 10 days in a row that Team X is magnificent and on the 11th day say, maybe not so much. It's the only story that really seems to... To, to catch on minds and P.S. I'm way too scared of you to sack you. <laughs> <laughs> so. no, what should we even think about? Like positive or negative, I don't think is for a journalist to think about. I think a journalist is there to report whatever the best angle is, whatever the newest thing is, whatever the most newsworthy thing is, and it's for other people to decide whether it's negative or positive. When a journalist starts thinking about positive and negative, I think you know it's a thin end of the wedge. I mean, sports journalism is the same as journalism in that sense. It's the whole fourth estate. Watchdog thing, isn't it? What's in the public interest? And I think we have a question over here. Yes. Thanks for that. Um, I'm just curious about this whole agenda thing because um, Steve, you were saying that you know, does there need to be a point to your story with, um, regarding Sunny Bill? Um, I think the issue and the problem is for me as a reader is I don't know when you're just you know writing something because it happened and there is no point to it. There's no hidden agenda. And then, or when there is an agenda, and it sounded like, you know, the Phil Gould fluffy story about what a great guy Sonny Bill is, it sounded like that did have an agenda, which was to promote Sonny Bill. Um, so, yeah, just knowing when there's an agenda... Is... That's, a, that's a great final question, because I think it's the biggest problem confronting, you know, traditional media right now. It really is. It's that balance where, the, um, as I said, the newspapers have to... They, they, are, they are trying to entertain because their, their ability to inform has been impaired by the internet and in, in, the, in the cause of entertaining, um, they're, they're 
confusing readers, you know, and confusing readers, and readers don't know if they're picking up a piece of entertainment or a piece of information. And I think that's the number one problem confronting the whole industry uh, at the moment. Yeah. But, but there's an interesting way to talk about agendas. It depends what you mean by agenda. Some people thought I had an agenda against Ricky Ponning. Well, I had an agenda against Ricky Ponning because he went for two years without making 100. And his average had gone like that. And just as I said it was time to go, he made 100 and 200 against India. It didn't look all that good. <laughs> but, but if you're talking about agendas, it depends what they're based on. If you actually run through a set of figures on a team performance or a player performance, and you're, you're being analytical and critical, you can, you can call that an agenda, but it's done with basis of fact, not because you don't like the person or you don't like the or team. Or because you stand yeah. to benefit from criticising it. The, and the other thing too is just straight up perception here. Like I, I really enjoyed watching the, um, watching the Ashes at night and, and having my Twitter feed on and watching people, and I have a sort of follow a lot of sort of the cricket cognoscenti, and um, like half of the, Michael Atherton's commentary, I really enjoyed. I think he's really informative. But half the people reckon he's the most smarmy prick in the world. It's amazing. It's the same guy. And yeah. and you know, but you take a vox pop of a thousand people, five hundred will tell you brilliant analysis, and five hundred say, look how smug he is. I mean, you talk about the agenda and it being based on the sort of the facts in the sport, and I think that's a really other a critical point is to do with what happens on the field and you know what's in their private lives. And for me personally, the private life stuff is not really sport to me. Um, Unless it has an impact on the yeah. field. If something and, and off the field means they lose or the player's missing for yeah. a month or whatever, and, then suddenly I think it, it is of interest to sports fans. And, and if we can't cover that, then what are we there for? We're just PR agents. Stories often get a bigger run if there's a clear goodie and a clear baddie, yeah. though, I find. If you write a story that just presents a few facts and the reader um, can make up their own mind then it doesn't get as good a run as if yeah. there's a clear goodie and a clear baddie suddenly to be passes all over the back. Mm -hmm. the, the, the whole line between on the field and off the field can be really blurred sometimes. Shane Warne lost the Australian vice captaincy and was never made captain because he couldn't keep his pants on. Now, how do you cover that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, let's leave it on that note. Thank you very much, everyone, for your questions. Thanks for listening. Please remember to subscribe to Walkley Talks on iTunes and follow the Walkleys on Twitter and Facebook for new episode updates. You'll be the first to know about upcoming Walkleys news and events.